Hello, it's Tuesday, September the 26th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. We're going to do things a little differently today. We're going to talk about not just one, but two topics. One is China, and the other one is its neighbors in that portion of the Pacific Rim. Japan, the two Korean nations, Russia, the United States, and what is going to happen. And we're going to break this into two parts because it's simply too much to shoehorn into one podcast. It's a big topic, so big, in fact, that we're going to devote two separate podcasts. And joining me today is just the right person to handle this, and that is Michael Oslin. He's the inaugural Williams Griffiths Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution, where he specializes in global risk analysis, U.S. security, and foreign policy strategy, as well as security and political relations in Asia. He's a best-selling author, and his latest book is The End of the Asian Century, War Stagnation and the Risk to the World's Most Dynamic Region. He's a longtime contributor to the Wall Street Journal and National Review, and his writing appears in other leading publications, including The Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, and Politico. Michael, welcome to Stanford, and welcome to the Hoover Institution. Thanks very much, Bill. So, when we talk about the Northern Pacific, when we talk about these countries, let's look at the players. Let's start with Japan, a friend, an ally, watching missiles fly over Hokkaido. What are they thinking? Well, Japan has actually lived under the North Korean nuclear threat for years. Uh, in fact, I was in Japan in 1998 when the North Koreans launched their first medium-range missile over the country, and that was Japan's Sputnik moment. That was the, the moment that they decided that the, the uh, post-World War II uh, regime of just depending on American security and that they really didn't face any threats after uh, after the end of the Cold War uh, was over. And they began, it, it really transformed Japanese national security thinking and even politics, and they began a modernization. Uh, if you think about what the Japanese military was uh, 10 years ago, let alone 20, mm -hmm. and what it is today. It's, it's a dramatically transformed, much more capable force. They also invested enormous amounts of money, hundreds of millions of dollars in ballistic missile defense, and uh, arguably, actually I think not arguably, definitely, are the very best ally that the United States has and partner in ballistic missile defense. Uh, so for Japan, this is something they've lived with for a long time. What they haven't lived with, Bill, of course, is the idea of a nuclear North Korea. Now, when you're in Japan, uh, there's only a few cities of, of significance. Obviously, Tokyo, number one, which mm -hmm. in the Tokyo-Yokohama metropolitan region is about a quarter of Japan's population. So you take out that region. Uh, and you've essentially extinguished Japan as as a nation. Right. But let's say you take out that in Osaka, then really there's there's nothing left. It's not like China where you have 20 cities of you know uh, of 10 million or 20 million or 30 million or more. Japan is a very vulnerable target, as is South Korea. Uh, so for them, this is both a continuation of a long-term threat, but but something that is is deeply concerning because it it becomes existential. Uh, and they have turned to the United States evermore uh, for reassurances, but they've also watched as the United States over the past 15 years, or actually 25 years, has essentially let North Korea go nuclear. So I think right. we're getting towards the end of the road for both Japan and South Korea to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to trust that you'll solve this. Okay. Um, the country to the north of Japan, historically a complicated relationship between the two, and it has complication, complicated relationships with all the players, and that's Mother Russia. 
which hasn't received much attention in the talk about what's going on right now, but I assume Russia is watching this with great interest and maybe has a role to play here too. So Russia in Asia is very different from Russia in Europe. We're used to thinking about, you know, the, the great bear and its its threat to, uh, its, you know, it's near abroad, whether that's Eastern right. Europe or the Balkans or, uh, you know, the Baltics or, or the stands. Uh, and we think about a wall down the middle of Europe. Um, Russia and Asia has always been very different. Uh, its power there is much more limited, even though it has massive expanses of territory in, in mm -hmm. Siberia and, and, of course, east of all of the Urals. Um, in Asia, Russia traditionally plays a role that is more of a spoiler. Uh, it maneuvers amongst the different nations. It tries to balance nations off of each other. Uh, at, at certain times, it has sought to get a preponderance of power in Northeast Asia, uh, particularly in the uh, the beginning of the uh, the 20th century uh, to take over the Korean Peninsula, and, and Japan stopped that by attacking Russia and uh, um, defeating it in the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, but Russia shouldn't be discounted. In fact, it's you know, as Americans, we always think that it's Commodore Perry who in 1853, you know, quote unquote, opened up Japan uh, to the West. But the reality is that for the Japanese, the real threat uh, was Russia coming down from Siberia in the 1790s towards the northern part of the Japanese home islands. Uh, and that really spurred the first bout of Japanese modernization in the 19th century. So Russia still plays a role. Um, it, it obviously is dramatically overshadowed now by China. It can't hope to compete at that level, but it has things that everybody wants. Mm -hmm. uh, it has oil, it has gas, it has uh, uh, natural resources such as minerals, timber, fresh water. Right. So it, it has leverage in order to uh, both play a role, but also um, try to find partners uh, right. and, and sort of promise things in order to give them some, some level of, of activity. And it's tried to do that particularly through uh, through Japan and China. It plays the two off each other. Uh, in terms of, of the Korean crisis, though, Russia has been, under Putin lately, increasing its voice, um, you know, coming out against uh, UN sanctions, even though it voted for them, but right. saying that sanctions don't work. Um, really, really trying again to play that spoiler role. And I don't think yet that Washington sort of figured out how to to uh, either use or deflect Russia in Asia. Okay, you mentioned China and Chinese ascendancy. We're going to do a separate podcast yeah. on China, so just one or two minutes, just kind of a couple broad strokes on China. Well, you know, it, it, that's really how you can paint it. You know, China is the dominant player. It is a very broad stroke uh, economically, politically, uh, uh, institutionally, militarily. It, it really has become uh, the dominant player, even with all of its weaknesses. And I think there are a lot of weaknesses that we're not talking about. Um, I think above all, China wants stability in Asia because uh, instability is bad for it. It wants a reduced American role. Uh, so it's worried about America not only maintaining the role that it has, but actually increasing it because of the current crisis uh, on the Korean Peninsula. And it really wants to reshape uh, the state of, of uh, regional relations, uh, both economically and politically and, and militarily. So you can't have a discussion without talking about China, of course, in Asia. Uh, and that's similar with India as well. You know, you can't, you can't talk about uh, Asia without talking about India. But for now, it's really Beijing that's in the driver's seat. All right. Now, finally, the two Koreas. Let's start with the South, a friend and ally. I've been to Seoul. Uh, it is, as I imagine, most any major Asian metropolis crowded, just mm. bustling. But I'm not sure the same of other Asian metropolises. They love Americans. They are happy to see Americans. If you go to the Korean War Museum in Seoul, it is a 
beatification of the United States of America. What is going through South Korea's mind right now? Well, I think uh, first I have a, a slightly different take on how Seoul views America. I think it's it's, it's actually very complex. Um, there's a lot of anti-Americanism uh, in in the country, obviously mostly on the left, but also on the on mm-hmm. the farther right. Um, there is a lot of um, dissension over the uh, the American military presence in uh, South Korea. Um, there were some there, obviously, you know, there have been crimes committed by American servicemen against Korean nationals. Right. There was a tragic incident in the late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, where two schoolgirls school were crushed by an American crushed to death by an American uh, armored personnel carrier during exercises. Mm-hmm. These things have been very, very difficult uh, in in the relationship. Um, and the South Korean political uh, process swings between the, f- the the far right and the far left, basically. There's there's little of the middle. And right now we have a new president. The, uh, the, the old president last year, Korea's first uh, female president, Pak Geun-hae was impeached and removed from office for corruption and bribery. She was on the right, uh, in fact, the daughter of one of the South Korea's uh, military authoritarian uh, leaders, and was replaced by a farther left candidate. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say far, far left, but but definitely uh, on the, the left of the spectrum, uh, who comes from the, the party that always wants to engage more with North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so South Korea is, is in the midst of, of a, a, a sort of... Um, I wouldn't say schizophrenic, that's too far, but really a very split polity over which way to go. And it uh, watches the North Korean threat grow. We all sit there and think, well, the answer is reunification. And to a lot of the South Koreans, they don't want reunification, especially the young don't want reunification. It's too expensive. Uh, They don't feel the same connection to the North that their parents or grandparents did. And so there's, there's actually not a lot of appetite for uh, trying to, to to solve this in a way that we think it should be solved. Instead, um, there's a big feeling in South Korea, as there is in Taiwan vis-a-vis China, that you know we should just stay independent and we should stay separate. So the South Koreans have lived with the North Korean threat for 70 years or 60 years. There's a lot to s- there's a lot of evidence to say that they view it very differently. They whether they've just become accustomed to it or numb, they don't get into the same crisis mode that we do now. Mm-hmm. When you finally have a North Korean nuke, that may change. But they've lived under this ballistic missile and artillery threat for for a generation now. All right. Well, now let's get to the problem, child. North Korea. And here's what you said about North Korea in an interview with uh, Stanford University this past week. Quote, No package of incentives has been effective for the past quarter century, and both bilateral and multilateral negotiations have failed. There is little reason to believe that there are untried diplomatic means that can make a breakthrough where so many have failed. Michael Lawson, it sounds like you were saying, in effect, that the cannons could be kicked down the road, and we're at the end of the road. Does that mean that the only option here is military? Well, the can has been kicked down the road, Bill, definitely for for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried diplomacy, we tried threats, we tried to we tried to engage the North Koreans, we tried to coerce the North Koreans. Nothing's worked. Right. Um, if you say, is, are we at the end of the road because they're a nuclear power, then the answer is yes. But in one way, that just starts a different road mm-hmm. and a much more complicated road, which is how do you deter and contain a North Korean nuclear power? I mean, we've been deterring and containing North Korea for 60 years. Mm-hmm. Of course, that assumes, by the way, that they wanted to invade South Korea or they wanted to right. um, you know, bomb Japan and we've deterred them. So that, that itself is a different question. But, mm-hmm. w- but that has been our policy. We haven't right. really talked about it in those terms, but it's been deterrence and containment. 
now you have to think about how do we deter and contain a nuclear North Korea. And that's not going to be the same thing as deterring a nuclear Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. It's a different type of actor. It's a different political system. It's a, it's a different player. It's not an expansive ideological, uh, ideological challenger to the United States. It's not an existential political threat. It is a very different, a different challenge, which I think is going to lead some people to say, well, you just need to leave it alone. And then it'll leave you alone. Don't stir up the hornet's nest. Um, we we have we're at the point where we now have to do a, a full rethink mm -hmm. uh, on on North Korea. It doesn't mean that we stop things like sanctions, though. I think what we have to do is stop the idea that sanctions are now a tool to get the North Koreans back to the negotiating table. Mm -hmm. Sanctions should be punitive. Uh, they should be. If you think of containment in this term, it's containing North Korea's ability to both build its its weapons of mass destruction right. program and also be a, a bad actor abroad. So it, we should be cutting off money, not because we want to get them to, to talk to us, but because it's punishment. And I think a lot of the, the recent rhetoric that you've heard from the Trump administration is getting to that point. Uh, it's saying this is this is to punish them and that that's the right thing to do. So I think you continue sanctions. You should always have a channel open for communication. Uh, you learn certain things. Um, I think you, you don't sit there and say, well, our goal is to talk for no purpose at all, but they have to know that they can talk to us. They do that in New York through the UN and that's fine. Uh, and we should keep that open. We shouldn't close that down. Mm -hmm. But the big thing that we have to do is get over the idea uh, bordering on, on fantasy, I would say, of denuclearization. It's, it's not going to happen. Right. Your thoughts on President Trump's U.N. speech? Like most things on Trump, Michael, it seems that one side of the aisle is horrified that he goes in and uses decidedly blunt language, we're going to destroy North Korea. On the other hand, people saying it's about time somebody talked in no uncertain terms to the United Nations, no more pussyfooting around. What did you make of the speech? I came down more on the side of it's about time to change the rhetoric. I'm not sure I would have gone that far. Uh, and, and everyone focused on the two words totally destroy. They didn't right. focus on the word if. And he said if we have to defend ourselves and our allies. And if you read after that also, he talks about bringing the United Nations in. So. Absolutely. I mean, from, from the beginning. Right. And also, you know, also right. threw down the gauntlet saying, but, okay, it's your turn. Let's but, see what but you can actually do. Sound bites, it is a jarring sound bite. It's a jarring sound bite. I, I think, though, that y you have to think, and I'm not sure this is what he was doing, but you have to think who the audience is. And if right. his audience was Kim Jong un, mm -hmm. then I think it was, uh, in many ways, the right, the right speech. Now, you know, as a diplomatic historian, I, I think you always need to leave yourself wiggle room and negotiating room. Right. You don't close off avenues, and you certainly don't back yourself into a corner. Uh, but I think that the North Koreans have gotten used to milk-a-toast uh, rhetoric from the United States for years, and, and the rhetoric sent a signal to them that we weren't really going to do much and we weren't serious. And so the rhetoric about let's talk, let's figure out a solution, that's exactly what they wanted to hear because they have no interest in that whatsoever, and, it, and they know that buys them time. Right. So I think if you want to introduce some uncertainty into Kim Jong-un's thinking and maybe a little bit of... of um, fear about what the future might hold, then you need to change the rhetoric. Again, is this, you know, would you, would you go this far or, or not? But we reach these points, you know, at, at different times in our history when the, the path that we've assiduously followed has been shown to be barren and, and, and failure. And then the rhetoric does change. Um, 
You, know, you can see it with Jimmy Carter at the end of his presidency when he realized that his accommodationist stances didn't work. Mm -hmm. You obviously see it with Franklin Roosevelt in in the the late nineteen forty uh, late nineteen thirties early forties when you know he knew he was going to have to make a choice and the you know you had to change that rhetoric to start getting the country geared up for some type of engagement in the European war. Uh, and I think we're at that point now. Um, you can't any longer pretend. North Korea is not a nuclear power. So uh, while I think you have to stop, you have to drop the fantasy of denuclearization, mm -hmm. which will only happen under compulsion. It will only happen if we compel them through military force to do it, right. which I'm doubtful that, we'll, that we will do because the risks are very high. Um, then you, you, you have to try to set a new sort of bar and standard. Uh, and you, you have to put them on notice that you're, you're aware that you're in a new era. Um, and that era is you step over the line right. and we're going to squash you. Mm. Now, let me ask you sort of a two-part question here. Hopefully you can address this because I'm asking you to kind of speculate here. But if you go back to the 1930s scenario with FDR, you could look at Adolf Hitler and figure out Adolf Hitler one way. It's by reading his book. And if you'd read his book, you'd have found out his opinion about the Jewish people and you would have found out his opinion about Russia. It must be invaded. So you could have predicted what Hitler would do ultimately. But here we are dealing with somebody who has not written books about himself, does not sit down with Barbara Walters for long interviews, uh, is in a very closed-off kingdom, if you will, a little closed-off country. How, Michael, do we assess how – do how do we do psychological profiles of this fella? How do we assess what is going on in his mind? And then secondly, from that, since we have sort of a limited understanding of who he is, what makes him tick, how do we decide what exactly rattles his cage? It's a great question, and I don't think we have the answers to them. Uh, I don't think but, we... Okay, so what, but as a historian, yeah. how, would you, how would you study him? Obviously in the context of the family dynasty, but then do you look at his lifestyle? Do you look at the, do you look at the economic conditions in North Korea? How do, you, how do you do if you're working with the CIA? How do you make your assessment of that? Yeah, him? so we did that with his father, mm -hmm. uh, and we knew his father's lavish tastes, you know, right. top-shelf cognac and, you know, DVDs and all these things. And so we thought, look, here's a guy who doesn't want to go up in a in a uh, flaming ball of smoke, and so maybe we can make a deal with him. Mm -hmm. um, part of the problem is that we didn't even know Kim Jong-un existed until a couple of years before he took power in 2012, uh, so, uh, or, or maybe late 2011. But anyway, we, um, we didn't even know he existed, so we didn't have time to sort of, you know, who is this kid, what has he said? We know he studied in Switzerland. Uh, we know he likes basketball, uh, and he likes Dennis Rodman. You know, it's not a lot, it's not a lot to go on. Um, I think the way you deal with him, and certainly if, if you know if you're putting together the type of profile, is you can make some assumptions about the family business. I, I think that's probably fairly safe, uh, but it's really the actions. I think I think we have to build a case now from you know a profile from the actions. What are those actions? Um, ruthlessness to a degree that even is um, on the outlier for North Korea. You know he executed his uncle his own uncle, right. who was widely seen as the number two in North Korea and was clearly understood to be China's man. Uh, that was soon after he took power. Um, and these flamboyant ways, by the way, of doing this, right? Um, blowing them up with anti-aircraft guns. I don't even know how that works, but that, you know, that's what they do. He executed the entire... Um, the entire orchestra or pop group of, of one of his former girlfriends because they had been engaged in some type of lewd behavior. Um, most recently this year, he assassinated in Malaysia's airport right. his half-brother. So here is, a, here is a guy who is brutally ruthless uh, on 
the personal scale of what you know what ensures his power. Then I think for the profile, you look at the uh, the external actions, the ones that that begin to affect us. Mm-hmm. The the problem here is that we'll never know what Kim Il Sung and Kim Jong Il, his grandfather and father, would have done if they had the same capabilities he does. Right. Right. If they had these missiles and they had this nuclear capability, what we do know though is that Kim has dramatically increased the pace of missile firings. Um, I, I forget the number this year, but there's been dozens already this year. Um, and, and they're becoming more strategic. One that we don't talk about a lot were the, the four shorter-range missiles he put into the waters off of Japan. Uh, and that was a very clear signal. They, they shot them off at the same time. They put them in the same area. And that, that is an attack scenario practice. That's mm-hmm. not just to say, hey, we got a missile. Let's see how far it can fly. That's, can we put it where we want it to? And then, then he told us, this is, this is for Guam, right? right? Then he's flying, as you started off our podcast, he's flying these missiles over populated areas of Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'll notice, a lot of these missiles break up in flight. In fact, the first one that flew over Japan uh, the, uh, just a few weeks ago um, broke up just after it passed over Hokkaido. So now think, what happens if the trajectory is slightly more north? It's going over Sapporo, a city of two million, mm-hmm. uh, and it breaks up, and you have flaming rocket debris falling on innocent civilians. Now you've got the potential for a war scenario on your hand or some type of military encounter. But he's right. continuing to do it. Right. It's, um, a, it's, all, it's all fun until somebody does. Exactly. Yeah. And, now, and, and now he's threatening Guam. Now, they've always threatened us, but it's been like these sort of grand Hollywood threats. You know, you'll be a sea of flaming ashes or whatever. Right. Now he's saying, I'm going to attack Guam. I'm right. really specific. So you, just, you just walked on my next question. Let's mm-hmm. say, let's suppose that he does launch a missile toward Guam. And let's suppose that maybe he does not intend to hit Guam. But given that these things are unpredictable, it hits Guam. Sure. And it kills American servicemen. And it maybe destroys some facilities and things like that. What's our option at that point? Well, we can do nothing. Well, we could do nothing. But sure. we'll have to do something. Maybe. Maybe. Um, okay, I think so. What what is the best option? What, look, that what, what is, would you recommend? That that is clearly the danger. Here's here I think is so we're we're all talking about war right now. Uh, you know we're flying B ones and F fifteens over, actually outside of North Korean airspace. Well, okay, let's back that up a second, Michael. So we're talking. Well, first of all, we're talking about a country that technically is still at war. The right. Two Koreas are still at war. The Correct. armistice did not end things. It just Correct. put everything on pause. Uh, so when we talk about war, it's, we're really talking about a military action or a series of military actions, correct? Right. So what I wanted to um, sort of bring us towards is the big question of can you have a limited war on the Korean Peninsula? So when we're talking about war right now, Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people are thinking this is the big one. We're going to roll into Pyongyang and get rid of Kim. I think what most people are thinking is we're going to do some sort of military strikes. That's what we're used to, right? We launch cruise missiles. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's what Trump did against Syria. Right. You can do that, and you could do that in response to an attack on Guam, as we mm-hmm. were just talking about. The problem is that doesn't solve your your crisis. It right. does not get rid of his nuclear or ballistic missile programs. Those are too developed. They're too scattered. They're too protected. They're in caves. They're underground. Um, the time to have attacked was 1994, when North Korea was weaker and the program was in its infancy, and you could pull an Israel-style OSIRAC I think attack. William, I think William Perry, the former Secretary of Defense of the Hoover Institution, I think he advocated this back back in the day. Well, he they advocated... So President Clinton ordered an airstrike, and uh, the bombers were uh, apparently in the air, and then Jimmy Carter calls from Pyongyang on, on the phone and says, hey, I got a deal. 
And that got us into the agreed framework. Uh, and uh, like many, I've talked with Secretary Perry about this, and they were very skeptical of uh, a diplomatic approach, but they were very, very worried about the military approach because right. back then North Korea would have done a lot of damage to South Korea. So give, give Jimmy Carter an umbrella and he's Neville Chamberlain. It, ex exactly. And, and we saw that, uh, I mean, there was apparently a lot of a lot of real frustration in the Clinton administration that he had, you know, he had upstaged them and won up them. And now what are you going to do, attack while a former American president is there? And I don't know all of those details. But they, but Perry says, look, we chose the diplomatic route. Right. Uh, and at the time, that was the prudent route to take. You don't want to engage in war. We never had done preventive war before. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've done it now in Iraq, but we had never done preventive war. Um, but now we see where that took us 25 years down the road. And if he does have nuclear weapons, uh, meaning he can put a warhead on top of a missile, then if he thinks he's going to lose that war, that's when he's going to launch them. I, I don't think he's going to launch them beforehand because that would invite the destruction of his regime. But if we get into a conventional war because he's uh, made a mistake or, or miscalculated or overstepped the bounds, and if all of a sudden uh, it looks like this thing is spinning into the, the big one, then I think he's going to let these things go. It's, it, that's going to be the Hitler in the bunker moment. Right. So we have a, a real risk if you say, how do we respond to something like an attack on Guam, or, or can we have uh, a limited war? Um, because again, the pinpricks are not going to work. It's not going to solve the problem we have. Uh, you have to really think, what type of punishment do you want to inflict? Do you want to try to take out those those rocket tubes pointed, uh, the artillery tubes pointed at Seoul? Uh, we can't get all of his weapons. A lot of these things are hidden. Again, Bill, they're in caves. They roll them out when they need them. Uh, it, it's a much more difficult military problem than, than I think most people consider. Okay, two-part two question here. You mentioned earlier uh, the Sodom and Baghdad scenario where in Desert Storm, the first, the first Gulf War, we face the question of what is the end purpose of this. The end purpose, the Bush administration decides, is to get them out of Kuwait and go back to the, what it, the status quo what existed before yeah. instead of going all the way to Baghdad and taking them out of power. So what is the end game in North Korea if we engage in military actions? Are we just trying to, are we trying to just neutralize his military forces in North Korea. Obviously, the nukes are part of the equation. But what about decapitation, Michael? Do we take him out too? Well, again, um, you or, know, or would you hope that North Korea would take care if if the North Korean military was attacked and it became aware that he had been humiliated, that he would he would die of his own natural causes, if you will. The country would take him out. Well, that's it's that's possible. I think um, we can't talk too much about this scenario without talking about China because China's not going to let us just walk into North Korea or, or roll into Seoul. Right. Uh, but again, it's not, you know, with, uh, you know, the 1991 example, he he's not expanding territory. So it's not we just want to get back to the status quo ante, for example. Um, we know we can't destroy the military, uh, even in a full-on war. You know, you're going to, you're hopefully going to have a, a I think he's going to lose, but you'll have a surrender, you'll have whatever happens, mm -hmm. uh, and then you'll figure out what to do with the rest of the military later on, as we did with Germany and Japan after World War II. Um, so that, that question really does become, is there any way uh, that you can, you can control this? Uh, and I think once you cross that line, it's going to be very difficult to control. A lot of it will depend on what his first response is, mm -hmm. um, which, and of course, his first response may well depend on ours. But if he decides 
to launch an all-out barrage against Seoul. And, the, you know, we don't know how much artillery he has. We don't know how well it's going to work. Sits there in the humid summers in South Korea uh, or North Korea. But, you know, assuming he's got a couple of days uh, and can inflict significant casualties, then it's very hard to pull back from a massive war. So once you cross that line, uh, I think the logic of North Korea, this is not a regime, it's a regime that wants to survive, but it is, it's also not a regime that knows necessarily how to compromise. It knows how to dance up to the line and dance back. What we've never encountered since 1953 is what it's going to do when the lines are crossed. And I think it's going to be very hard to predict. It's going to be very hard to control. And above all, it's not going to be solely our call. Beijing is going to get involved very quickly, I think in force. Uh, they may be the ones who take care of Kim Jong-un uh, and clamp down on the military, mm -hmm. but it, it's not going to be that the rest of the region sits behind and watches us do whatever we're going to do. To use a baseball scenario, does China have anybody in the bullpen? Well, we don't know. That's that's the big question. I mm -hmm. think if they had confidence that they had someone in the bullpen, then Kim Jong-un might be a little bit more nervous than he is today. There's no question that the Chinese do not like Kim Jong-un. But we shouldn't confuse that with them not liking North Korea. Right. They like North Korea. They like having North Korea. It's a good buffer. Uh, it is a, a pain for the United States. It, it causes us to spend all sorts of time doing this and, and you know, at much higher levels. Yeah. They don't want to get rid of North Korea by any means. And they're not going to allow a unified democratic peninsula if they can help it. And they can help it in a lot of different ways to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But they don't like him. So... You know, one of the reasons that he got rid of his uncle, Chang Song Tech, was probably because he didn't want that alternative Chinese power center in, right. in North Korea. That only makes sense, right? So do the Chinese have someone else? We don't know. Uh, we don't know as much as we should after all these years about the loyalty of the military or fractures within the military. And there is another brother. Uh, there's one left. And I think, I may be wrong, I think he's a full brother. The one that was assassinated was a half-brother who seemed really innocuous. I mean, this is a guy who just wanted to go and try to get into Disneyland and go travel, I mean, literally. Um, the other brother might could be more of a threat, so it's interesting that he's still around, assuming he is. Now, you have devoted about 8,300 words to an article, uh, as yet unpublished, soon to be published, in which you say, in effect, that you're concerned not just about a nuclear mushroom appearing in this corner of the world, but you're actually concerned about a different nuclear issue, which is nuclear hazard, nuclear accident, nuclear collateral damage, things we're not thinking about. What what exactly is on your mind? Yeah, I think um, the biggest danger we face is not nuclear war, it's nuclear accident, which leads to a war. Define, um, define nuclear accident. Yeah, so ha having nuclear weapons is a very complicated process. Uh, the, the U.S. military calls it the nuclear enterprise. And at the core of the nuclear enterprise is what they call nuclear surety. And that basically comes down to the safety and reliability of the weapons. Because turning the keys, as we see in the movies like War Games or Crimson Tide or, or whatever, Dr. Strangelove dropping the bomb, that's the very end of an incredibly long process right. that begins with actually making these weapons, uh, which itself is dangerous. And you have to be safe. And we had fatalities in the early years of our program. We've had enormous numbers of accidents, um, hundreds of accidents. We've had, we, we had a Titan II missile blow up in its silo with a warhead on it in 1980. We had, during the Cold War, when we had those B-52s up there and B-47s up there all the time, we dropped nuclear weapons over the United yep. States 
and other countries, Spain, for example, uh, Iceland, uh, Greenland, other countries, uh, by accident. In fact, to this day, there are six unaccounted for nuclear weapons lying somewhere under the ground in the United States. We, can, we, we were never able to find them. Um, the point is that this is a very complicated process. And we have to make sure, in a way, that Kim Jong-un can control his nukes. Mm -hmm. uh, he has to control the people. He has to make sure the weapons aren't going to go off. He has to make sure the rockets don't go off because of an of a electronic or me mechanical glitch. He has to make sure that someone doesn't panic when they see a B-52 flying overhead and decide this is the big one and they, they launch their weapon. We have no idea what his command and control system is going to be like. Right. We don't know if there's going to be a two-man rule like we have. We don't know if, which is actually really a four-man rule. Um, we don't know if there's going to be a, a um, sealed authenticators. We don't know if there's going to be permissive action links. Uh, we have no idea how the orders are going to be disseminated. We have no idea about the reliability of the dissemination means. You remember that movie Crimson Tide, right? They're getting the, they're getting the launch message and it breaks off. Okay, right. now imagine that happening in North Korea because the phone lines go down or they're not reliable or, or we or someone else hacks them. Right. Um, his his uh, missiles today are liquid-fueled, which is far more unstable. They've got to fuel these things up. Uh, you can have an explosion on the missile that, that could detonate a warhead. Now, if a warhead gets detonated, warhead detonates on North Korean soil, uh, it's going to be hard to cover up even in North Korea, right? Uh Silly question, but which way does a wind blow in North Korea? Well, exactly. So first, you could have an accident where if it were big enough, if it were correctly placed, most of it's going to disperse out over the ocean. But mm -hmm. there could be conceivably where the winds blow it down to South Korea, which is a lot closer, or even over to Japan. Japan it's, right. it's possible. Probably a little bit less likely because a lot of it would disperse, but it's not inconceivable. But more so, if you have a detonation over North Korean soil, is Kim Jong-un going to say, oh, yeah, that was us, we, we made a mistake? Or is he going to say, no, we were just attacked by the U.S., we were attacked by Japan, or they sabotaged us? The, the point is that there are any number of accidents that could happen in a world with North Korean nukes. And before you know it, you could find yourself in an actual war because he can't back down or admit that it was his mistake or his his uh, force isn't reliable, or during a crisis, he believes his force isn't reliable, so he decides to use them. We have no idea what could happen. You could play out a hundred different versions. But on the assumption that we're not going to have preventive war, it's, it's just my assumption right now, and I may be disproved within a week by the time this podcast comes out, but on the assumption we're not going to have preventive war because the bar is very high post-Iraq, then barring some unforeseen circumstance, we're going to live in a world of North Korean nukes. And we have to make sure, as I said, that those nukes are safe. It sounds crazy, but we may have to help North Korea be a better nuclear power because the last thing you want are these things launching off or one of his crazy guys panicking or fear overtaking them or whatever it is. But being a better nuclear power, Michael, suggests what? Sending in people from other countries to monitor their their weapons and their energy and things like that, things which his, he just simply will not do. Yeah, it's a crazy it's a crazy radical thought. You certainly can't do it in the way of saying we want to control no, these weapons. I mean, would he, would he ever let inspectors come into his country? No, there's no. no way. But, you know, you never know, for example, having the Chinese come in, which mm -hmm. he, he would bristle at and probably not allow, but he would be more likely to let them in than us to sort of say, okay, if you're going to have nukes, mm -hmm. this, is, this is how you do it. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, giving your kid the keys to the car. You got to teach them first. Mm -hmm. And I know it sounds crazy, 
But again, we may be looking at a future, a permanent future, in which we have a world where North Korea holds nukes. Now, how could we ever sleep safe at night knowing that all the hundreds of accidents that we and the Soviets had during the Cold War years when we poured billions of dollars into safety and reliability and human reliability and mechanical reliability, where we had clear chains of command, where we had highly trained uh, forces that um, were disaster response and crisis response teams to try to solve any problem we had, and the Soviets had them too. Is he going to have any of that? And so how can we ever sleep at night knowing that this guy has megatonnage weapons that who knows one day they just go off or lift off? I can't let you go without asking a very simple question that the, the press has failed to write for the past year. How does a country in which most of its population is starving, that is hungry for technology, no pun intended, but is limited in so many ways, backwards in so many ways, how do they get nuclear weapons? Well, first of all, it takes decades, and they've, they've spent the decades. They never have wavered. They've never deterred right. uh, in this quest for nuclear but weapons. So even if but, it takes... But they didn't do it on their own. No, they no. didn't. So who helped? The Chinese helped. Uh, we know that the AQ Khan network help out of, helped out of Pakistan. Um, the Iranians have helped uh, probably in different ways. They all, there is, uh, you know, there is a community of, of uh, you know, um, underground actors in all of this. And the mm -hmm. Chinese have both abetted and turned their eyes. They've allowed the money to come in. Uh, then, but the North Koreans themselves have been the ones who have just consistently and steadily work towards this point. It would have been harder without help, but they may have gotten there. They may have gotten there anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay, final question. So we've talked a lot about military action, military scenarios, but let's shift back to the diplomatic front. First of all, uh, you mentioned the Jimmy Carter scenario. Carter goes to North Korea, negotiates. Do you recommend this for Donald Trump? Should Donald Trump send a non-administration emissary to North Korea and talk? Should Trump send Jim Mattis? Should he send the Secretary of State? Should Trump engage in a multinational series of negotiations? He's soon to meet with the Chinese leader. Should he let China handle it? How does the Trump administration proceed? I think it's very hard for Americans not to engage in that to some degree, whether it's, you know, the formal emissary or the informal emissary. Hard, hard not to. It's hard not to. We, it's just how we do things because we, right. we believe in negotiation. We believe in ultimate rationality and the ability to, to get some sort of agreement, but even you, if it's not a But you also, I think, would need agreement. to do that if you're going to eventually engage. You have to show the world that we, we ran out of options here. Right. If you're going to try the military option, you have to show that you, that you right. did everything. And look, they've been going to the UN. They got two, um, two unanimous votes at the Security Council. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say, no, don't do it. Right. On the other hand, given the last 25 years, it's hard to say, well, exactly. why That's, would you do it? It gets back to your point in the Stanford Daily uh, piece. What do we do differently? Because we've been doing pretty much same and similar things for 25 years, and here we are. Yeah, and I, th I think that is the tragedy of, of our North Korea policy. It has failed, and maybe the, you know, the road to recovery is to admit failure. We have failed. Mm -hmm. We had a very simple goal, and we failed. They are a nuclear-capable state. Uh, if they can't put a warhead on Washington today, they'll get there. They have ICBMs. Uh, everything we've tried has not deterred them. Um, I don't believe there's a grand bargain you can have with Kim Jong-un. Uh, the only thing that seems to me that, that really works is a credible deterrence posture and a credible containment posture, again, tailored for North Korea. And 
letting them know that if they go out of that box, then it's all over. And there's risk with that, but there's enormous risk with the other path that we have, uh, which is either to go into open-ended negotiations again or to go to war. We really don't have a lot of good options. Uh, uh, people like Mike McFall, our colleague here at Hoover, have called for a freeze, and that's a it's, it's a good idea. It's very hard to implement. It's very hard to confirm on the ground. Everyone knows that, to verify. Um, and it also doesn't solve the problem of having nukes. It may right. cap a program, but we just don't have any good options. Now we have to start thinking afresh. It's a little bit like what Churchill said apocryphally. You know, gentlemen, we're out of money. Now we have to think. Well, gentlemen, our policy has failed. Now we have to think. All right, final, final question. Uh, Donald Trump is scheduled to travel to Asia later this year for the ASEAN summit, and he will meet with the Chinese government. Do you expect anything to happen vis-a-vis -vis North Korea between now and that trip, or do you think after the trip we might see something different? Well, this will be the thing, you know, as a historian, I'll always give the answer that we'll write about it later on yes. because, you know, I can say, of course not. How, how could you envision any type of military action between now and this publicly announced trip uh, and yet, of course, within you know a few hours, we may be proved wrong because events spiral out of control, and we just don't know what will happen. Exactly. It's the accident or the miscalculation that will really set this thing off. Uh, and if Trump can get into November without and pass the Chinese Party Congress without a crisis, then uh, I expect they're certainly going to talk more about what they can do, and the Chinese will try to go as far uh, as they can without actually really fully committing to something. Okay. Michael Ozen, enjoyed the conversation. I hope the Trump administration is reading your work. Thank you very much, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Michael Loslin and his Hoover colleagues straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. Michael Oslin is on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at Michael Oslin. That's at M-I-C-H-A-E-L-A-U-S-L-I-N. Remember, this is the first of our two podcasts on the situation in Asia. We're coming back to talk about China. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.